Providence, it's great to see you again. And if you're a guest here with us, uh, we are glad that you're here. If you're in the amphitheater or at home or uh, even in another country uh, watching on live stream, uh, I hope you know that Providence is that many of our families, uh, in fact, all the families who we visit, they actually stream in to, uh, to, um, uh, to join us. And so uh, we want to welcome you as well. John chapter 3, if you brought with you a Bible. If you want to turn there with me, we'll be in verses 1 to 15. If you don't have one with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that Bible home as a gift. And we're in a series through John. We're up to chapter 3, uh, just to see um, what, um, what, what God has placed in his word for us. The whole book was written specifically so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and in believing, we would have life in His name. Uh, we, uh, each month, we also have a verse to memorize, or two, and uh, we have one for March. It's John three sixteen and 17. So, church family, why don't you uh, say it with me, okay? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so I just want to encourage you to keep memorizing. That will actually be our text next Sunday and uh, when we're, uh, where we meet as we gather to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so I want to ask you to bow and let's pause and let's pray. Father, we come to you as we come to your word. And we ask that you would address our heart, that you would examine our heart, And that you would help us to see if there is anything lacking. And you would use this text to do so. We thank you, Lord, that you have recorded this encounter. Thank you for the life of Nicodemus and how you used him and even his life, even the time when he was not believing in Jesus, to open up our eyes to see something really important. In particular, I pray that if there's anyone in this room Lord, like Nicodemus, that is righteous from the outward. And they look like they're close to home, but they're really far from you. I pray, Father, that you would use this morning, Lord, to save, to change course. And so we ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would be our teacher, that you would speak through weakness, and that you would bring glory to Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So... There's a feeling uh, that, uh, that it seems like I experience a lot in life. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's the feeling of, of, um, of getting lost, okay? And most of you know that awful feeling that when you are traveling and when you're working through a, a, a certain path in life, a certain um, trail or whatever, and then all of a sudden you get to the place and you find after you have um, just poured out so much energy and passion and time and prayer, and you find out, you know, that was a dead end. Uh, years ago, I went with uh, several friends, and uh, we, we, we went hiking up in the mountains here in North Carolina, and we were there for three days, we had the big packs, and we were going along, and there was, there was one day where uh, we had two options, and we said, well, let's take the right option, because we thought that was the option, and so we traveled several miles only to find that the path ended with an impassable river, and, and, and just how, uh, how discouraging that is. Not only that all of your efforts are met with a lack of progress, but even more than that is all of your efforts actually 
led us to a place that was further away from our destination than when we first began. And the fact is, is finding a hiking path to be a dead end is one thing. But finding a life path to be a dead end is really quite another. And when you get to John chapter 3, what you find is Jesus engaging with a man who is laboring down a particular path that he assumed was going to lead him to heaven. But it was a dead end. And Jesus knew that it was a dead end. And so he looks at this man in the face in order to lift up his eyes, and I believe to lift up our eyes in order to show him the right path to get home. His name is Nicodemus, and this is his story with Jesus. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees. You see his name, Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So there's three things that I want you to see. The first is this, is that we must come to see That every clever path to God is a dead end. Hear this really, really carefully. When it comes to being reconciled and brought to him, he does not want you to be creative. Every clever path that man has ever devised in order to get from where we are to where he is has always been and will forever be a dead end. So here's Nicodemus, and he's seeing Jesus perform these miraculous signs. Maybe he was uh, in the group in John chapter 2, verse 23, where it says, and there was a crowd that was gathered, and they were observing Jesus do these miracles. And, and so he comes to him, and we're told that he came in the cover of night. We're not told why. Perhaps he was afraid. Perhaps he was afraid of... His, his own Pharisee buddies sort of making fun of him or, or, 
Uh, or perhaps there's been crowds around Jesus all the time, and maybe he wanted some time where he could actually converse with him individually. We're not told. But he comes at night and he says to him, Jesus, we know that you're from God. Because no one could be doing the things that we see with our eyes, the signs that we see unless he was from God. And before Nicodemus can take another breath to either get to his first question or to state the reason that he came to him, Jesus interrupts his entire course of life and says to him, first of all, the word truly, truly. Now, when you read truly, truly, which only happens in John, what you find there is, is, um, is Christ seeking to, to, um, to alert us to something that is of paramount importance. It's like saying, please listen, please listen. Verily, verily, truly, truly. And he says to him, unless you're born again, you will not be a part of the kingdom of God. In other words, what he says to him is, Nicodemus, I recognize that you're running really hard, but your compass is broken. And so you're running in the wrong direction. All of your labors are only getting you further from the destination that you want to get to. Unless you are born again, you will not go to heaven. Now, sometimes we, we, we read this, and in particular for those of us in the room who maybe have read John chapter 3 like a hundred times in our life, and we just know what's next. But can you imagine the conversation, he's not even been able to ask a question and Jesus sizes him up and he says, you're going to go to hell if you continue on the course that you're on. Now you have to understand who this guy is also. It starts, right? John wants us to know the kind of man this was. This was not an evil man that was, that was, that was um, wildly sinful and everyone knew oh, that, 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 that guy's a dropout right there. No, this was a man that was heavily accomplished in life. We're told he was a Pharisee. There was about 6,000 Pharisees at the time in Israel. And the Pharisees were, were incredibly serious about knowing the truth, teaching the truth, seeking to obey the truth. They made all kinds of laws to help them to obey the truth, or at least what they thought would help them. They were absolutely committed to the truth and to morality and to um, uh, self-sacrifice and discipline and personal purity, all in order to, to merit favor with God. And Jesus looks at him. And he says, it's not enough. Not only was he a Pharisee, but we're told that he was a ruler of the Jews. What this means is he was a part of something. Uh, there was, there was um, what we would maybe know here in our nation as the Senate. Okay, there was this thing, it was called the Sanhedrin. And it was sort of the 70 of the, of the most influential leaders in the whole nation. And Nicodemus was one of them. So he wasn't just a run-of-the-mill Pharisee. He was literally, he was like, like world-class pastor and senator all in one. And all of his life was being spent adding to a foundation that he thought was going to merit something before God. All of his relationships, all of his dreams and hopes and aspirations... 
all of his effort, all of his work was all like a house that was being built on a foundation of an assumption that this is the currency in heaven that is going to allow me not only to go to heaven and to be entered into heaven, but this is the currency that's going to make God happy with me, pleased with me. So he's spending his whole life trying to accumulate a currency. And Jesus, in a matter of seconds, sizes the whole man up in the whole course of his life and says to him, in essence, insufficient funds. Can you imagine? I mean, last week, right? We're, we're, we're overseas and we're, we're in this place where, of course, we don't have a car. And, and George, he wants some cookies. And we're like, well, we don't have cookies, George. Well, let's go find some. So we started walking around this town. We've never been there. We don't speak the language. But we're looking for a convenience store. We get to a, a store and all of a sudden there's lots of cookies there. And my son, Seth, uh, someone had given him... Um, uh, in his life group here at Providence, which was uh, sort of funny, um, a, a bill, um, uh, like actual money, right, with the country on its name, and there was $20 worth. And so I thought, well, this is great. And he asked me, he goes, listen, I want you to take this, and I want you to buy me something with it. So I thought, this is perfect. I'll bring him some chocolate. And so I kind of added some stuff up, and I, and I go up there, and he said, it'll be 15-something. So I pull out this 20, and I give it to him. And he doesn't speak English, and, and I don't speak his language. And so he just looks at me, and he goes, no. <laughs> and I, I, I'm like, well, what do I say next? I mean, yes, no. I mean, it, so, so I, I, I do this. I go, no, and and uh, so George is over here. I said, George, I said, uh, I said something's wrong. I said, our, our money doesn't work. And, and, um, <laughs> and so come to find out that this bill is now expired, that the real $20 bill is much, much smaller than this. And so he was looking at it and he was saying, look, you want to buy something, but that's not going to get it done. And this is exactly what Jesus did with Nicodemus. You see, friends, God has never invited us to be clever in finding a road to him. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. And so like a gracious teacher at midterm, Jesus goes to Nicodemus recognizing that he's on the course of failure. And he warns him beforehand so that his course can change before the final exam. And you and I can be sure that Jesus is an authoritative voice of what is required when we get to heaven for two reasons. One is in this text. In verse 13, we're actually told that Jesus came from heaven. He's the son of man that literally descended from heaven. So he knows what's required there. But not only does he know what's required there, the reason he knows what's required there, the second reason that he's the authoritative voice is because Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 tells us he's the judge that we're going to stand before when we get there. So just imagine Nicodemus. He's looking at Jesus, not knowing that this very face is going to be the one that's going to judge him for all eternity. And this face before the time of judgment is looking at him in mercy and love and saying, you've got to change course. You must be born again. You see, friends, look, eternity is simply too long to get this wrong. Which is why I want to encourage you this morning by way of application of this first point is let's examine our heart to identify the source of our hope. 
If we go no further than that, I would encourage you to answer this question right now in your own heart. And that is that when you went to bed last night or maybe tonight, uncertain if you will ever wake up again, what was the thing, what was the anchor that that you strapped your hope around to say, well, it's going to be okay for this reason. What is that reason? What is that reason? And that leads us to the second point. And that is this, whatever reason that is, we must be born again to enter heaven. We must be born again to enter heaven. He says to him, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Now, I hope that you can feel and sense some of the impossibility of what Jesus is asking here. Most of us, even if God is not in our life, that we're not believing in God, if we open up the Bible and you found an instruction that says, love your neighbor as yourself, you could concoct some way, some rationale, some movement in your life, maybe to try to love other people. You could come up with some ideas of things that might be loving. But try this one on for size. Go, on, go ahead this afternoon and born yourself again. I mean, how are you going to do that? And that's what Nicodemus, he goes, um, all right, this doesn't add up. So how can an old man be born again? Does he have to go back into his mother's womb? And Jesus at this point, he could have retreated. He could have said, you know what? This is a bad illustration. Let me try again. But that's not what he does. He goes, he actually anchors it even deeper to explain the two different births. He said, now listen to me. He says, truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the spirit, there's two different births there. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now to be born of water is something that all of us have experienced. To be born of water is to be born physically. When you were born, this is kind of gross and whatnot, but the fact is, is there was blood and there was also a lot of water. And this is what he's referring to here is that every single one of us has been born once. And once we were born, we wanted food, we wanted drink, we wanted warmth, we wanted all kinds of physical things. And all of us have been born once. But he says you have to be born a second time. Now why? And the reason is because Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, for, the, it says, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And the Bible tells us that our sin literally leads to a spiritual death in our heart. To where God pokes and prods and we're unresponsive to his prodding. It's interesting that when we, when we are, are, are born the first time, but sin is in our heart and there's no redemption yet within us. What the Bible actually tells us is that we still have the capacity to love. But the polarity of our heart, the magnetic poles, they're so twisted that we love in the wrong direction. And this is why he says down in verse six, he says, that which is born of the flesh is the flesh. Now, what that means is this, is that when you take our physical birth and you add sin to that, what happens is our central operating system, our engine, it bears forth flesh. It bears sin. So what comes out of our, the, 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 um, the unhealthy sap in the tree is fruit that's not very healthy. And the apostle Paul, to a letter to a church, he, he wants to explain 
what some of that fruit looks like. I want you to notice that each one of these words, there's love involved. It's just twisted love. Paul says, now the works of the flesh, they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, great dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. So he says, this is what comes from the flesh. Now, all of us, when we look back upon our life, some of those words describe some of our days. And if you look at that list, the fact is, is there's love involved. It's just love that's been disoriented. It's misplaced. And so we're loving sex, or we're loving money, or we're loving beer, or we're loving ourself, or we're loving getting our own way. We're loving the downfall of others if it raises us up. And this is what he's talking about. That which is from the flesh bears forth flesh. And so while we were doing this, when our flesh was giving birth to flesh, Jesus came, he died, and he rose from the dead so that all who would trust in him could be born again spiritually. Now, the apostle Paul, he doesn't use the word born again. He uses the word regeneration, the opposite of degeneration. So if you have a flower, and it's beautiful, and it's complex, and it's red, and it's colorful, and it's, it pops, and it looks healthy, and And then all of a sudden it degenerates. What we expect is that it's going to dry up. It's going to become brittle. It's going to become black. It's going to get dark. It's going to, it it dies. And this is what he says of us. He says that we, we start made in the image of God. And all of a sudden we find ourselves doing and thinking and saying things that are just not healthy at all. And God looks at that and he says that physical birth, it ends in death. But regeneration is when a dead flower, it's all black and brittle. All of a sudden you go out one day and all of a sudden you see just a little trace of color in it. And then all of a sudden it looks as if, as if nutrients and water is flowing through this, through this vine and it's actually going up and it's, and it's making it healthy again. And, and you go back the next day and all of a sudden it's, it's this beautiful rose. And then all of a sudden you go back and it's bearing fruit and there's more roses. This is regeneration. It's not turning a new leaf. It's not trying harder. It's getting a new engine, a new heart, where God takes away the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And when this takes place, what happens is it says in verse 6, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so Paul, in the same text, when he's listing all of those nasty fruits that we don't want to see in our life, but that we do in our past, He says, but you know what? The spirit bears a different kind of fruit. And this is what he says. He goes, look, the fruit of the spirit, though, is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, those of us who are born again, we still get fouled up, but our new nature is inclined to look up to God when we fail. Now hear this, because this is really important. To prove that our new birth is the merciful, sovereign work of God. Jesus says, verse 8, he says, the wind, and the wind is the exact same word for spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. 
In other words, what he's saying is that you and I, we're all like shipwrecked sailors that are stranded on a raft and we've made a makeshift sail out of some t-shirts, but there's no wind and we're absolutely helpless to move anywhere without wind. This is why Peter says of our salvation in 1 Peter 1.3, he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. See, friends, we do not initiate our new birth. We don't born ourselves again any more than Lazarus that we'll find in John chapter 11 initiated his own resurrection. His resurrection from that tomb and our new birth, they both come from Jesus saying, come forth. So all the praise goes to him. And so by way of application, I want to speak specifically to those in the room right now who believe that they are a Christian, who believe that you are on a path that is leading to God. And I want to give us two applications. The first is this, is let's examine our heart to see if we are born again. You see, religion is the most common camouflage for looking the part while not being born again. That's what Nicodemus was. He looked the part. He looked like he was at home. And yet he wasn't at home. And so we have to ask this. And the the goal is not to cause you to have fear. But eternity is too long to get this wrong. And so to examine yourself. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You see, what, what should we see in a in a rose bush that is regenerate? What sorts of things do we see? Now, these don't make us a rose bush. These are just evidence that our belief in Jesus Christ has born again a new life in us. And when we see these things, it's supposed to give us surety, confidence to examine ourselves and say, okay, God has confirmed in my spirit that I am his child. So a few things that you can look for in your own life. One is, do you have a submissive spirit to God's word? Romans chapter eight, verses seven through nine says, the mind of the flesh does not submit to God's law, but you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. In other words, when we're born again, we persistently, though imperfectly become, we enjoy showing preference to God and obedience. You see, for those who try to earn salvation, the word obedience is, is, is a commodity. If I obey enough, maybe I'll join the family. Maybe God will have me in. But obedience throughout the scriptures is not the wage we pay to get in the family. Obedience is what happens once you're there. And obedience, really, when you look at scripture, it's really about showing preference. Here's what I mean. I like musicals. Tabitha loves musicals. That's my wife, okay? I love watching her love musicals. So we go to musicals, okay? Now, if it was my choice and we could go to a basketball game or a dirt bike race or a lot of other things, right? That's what we would do. But she delights and I delight in her. So what we do is we go to musicals, you see? Why? Because there's a relationship where there's an inclination in the heart to want 
to show preference to her. It's a, oh, that's what obedience is with the Lord. There's a relationship already there. So our obedience is simply saying, oh, God, you like humility? You like when I tell the truth? Oh, well, it's my delight to show preference. But if, however, we read the scriptures and we hear God saying, I delight in this, and our heart rages up and says, I don't care what you like, then there's probably evidence that maybe our heart, if it is born again, it's really sick. I think a second thing we can look for in our life is the fighting of sin. Do you desire to fight sin? Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, when we're born again, we persistently, though imperfectly, become increasingly inhospitable to sin. We see sin that's sitting on a couch in our house that's been there for such a long period of time. And we start saying, you know what? You've got to go. I want you to go. And the third is love. First John 4, 7 says, Beloved, we love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves has been born of God. So we are born again. And when we're born again, we persistently, though imperfectly, love people as God has loved us. Well, how has he loved us? Two ways primarily, graciously and sacrificially. Let's start with sacrifice. Sacrificially, what that means is he pays a price to love us the way that he does. Graciously means he doesn't wait for us to perform or to earn it. He gives it when we were still sinning. And so you can identify, right, health in your own life if you're born again. If you see people and they're not performing it, they're not maybe even worthy. And yet you choose by grace to pay a dear price to yourself in order to love them in a certain way. Only people with a new engine do that. The second application after we examine our heart is let's humble ourselves every time we gather. You see, church family, what a difference it will make and does make when we approach every gathering together with this one thought, and that is except the mercy of God's spirit blowing upon my heart, I am a dead man or a dead woman in my sin that nobody in this room has contributed good works. When you walked in, the moral average of this room did not increase. Nor did it decrease. Because we were all batting zero. Jesus is his righteousness. And so when we come in here, our hearts should be just so grateful. So grateful. That we've been made a part of his family. The last thing I want you to see is this. Number three is that we must look to Jesus and believe to receive eternal life. I want you to imagine just for a second where Nicodemus is in this conversation. There's two impossibilities that have been put before him. One, he has to be born again. And two, he can't control wind. And wind has to blow in order for him to be saved. And so I can imagine him sitting there thinking, okay, Jesus, let me get this right. I need to be born again. To do so, I need the wind to blow in a certain direction. I can't control the wind, so I'm helpless. What am I supposed to do? And so what Jesus does is he pulls back an example 
Something that was supposed to point to Jesus Christ when it happened all the way back in Numbers that Nicodemus would have probably have memorized as a Pharisee. And the story is found in Numbers chapter 21. And Jesus speaks of it with the words, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what's the story? Well, I have it up here for you. That's what it says. And the people of Israel became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or water here. And we loathe this worthless food. Let me just pause. That's miracle food. That's Jesus just causing food to show up without anybody farming. And we loathe this food. All right, keep reading. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. You see, the snakes were a picture of God's wrath that were on the people because of their rebellion. The serpent on the pole was not a preventative measure to keep people from being bitten. It was to help people who had already been bitten. And in order for anyone to be saved from God's wrath, they had to look look at God's provision that was placed upon a pole. And Jesus uses that to say, you've got to look at me. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, friends, listen, the poison is already in our heart. We've already been bitten. And God's wrath is already upon us. And it's real. But all we have to do is look at his provision that hung on a cross. And we will be saved. Charles Spurgeon, this very passage was important to him, so much so that when he writes of his own conversion to Jesus Christ, this is what he says. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. For when I could go no further because of the snow, I turned down a side street and came to a little Methodist chapel. The pastor did not come that morning because of the snow. But at last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45:22, "Look unto me and be saved." all the ends of the earth. So this preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, look and don't take a deal of pain. A man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool in the world, yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look 
Anyone can look. But the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but there's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. And then the man started saying, look unto me, for I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, for I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. O poor sinner, look unto me. Now, when he had managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look miserable. (laughs) Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks from the pulpit made about my personal appearance. He continued, and you will always be miserable if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. You must look to him. I know not what else he said. I didn't make much notice of it. For I was possessed with that one thought. That like as when the bronze serpent was lifted up and the people only looked and were healed. So it is with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard the word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I did look. I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. You see, this is conversion. You know when the wind is blowing on you in that your eyes can see Jesus on the pole and you have opportunity to believe in him. And so this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, but in your heart, you recognize that there is a decision. What that means is the wind is blowing in your heart. God's already doing his work. And now you must believe in him. You must look to him. You must believe upon his accomplishments. And the Bible says that you and I will be saved. You don't have to do 50 things. Just one. You've got to look. You've got to look to him. And he will save you. Now a lot of you think, well... For all the unbelievers in the room, I hope you recognize that this was primarily for the religious people in the room. All the people who were the Nicodemuses, who were so used to being close, that we need to make sure that what, what really is taking place in our heart is that we are born again. Okay, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, we... Ask, God, for your grace in our life. Just as you warned Nicodemus, I pray, God, if there is anyone in this room who doesn't know Christ and is not looking, I pray, Father, that you would give them the opportunity now and that they would look and believe in Jesus and be saved to trust in your righteousness and your death and resurrection. God, we do thank you, Lord, for the privilege to show preference to you. Lord, as we continue, Lord, to sing one more song together, your word tells us that you love that. So we enjoy showing preference to you in doing that. Your word tells us that we should contemplate when we hear your word and think about what we've heard. And so we pray, God, as we take a moment, even just in silence and without singing, Lord, to think. I pray to God that you would be pleased as we show you preference. 
And Father, I pray, God, even as we give, your word tells us that you delight when your people give in a manner that you have given to us. And so it's with joy that we show preference to you in our giving. So in all these ways, God, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.